0: jump into our scripture reading for this morning which is Hebrews 4:14 4, through 5:10 Therefore since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven Jesus the son of God let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters relating to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness." This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek.
1: Okay, we've been going through the book of Hebrews on Sunday mornings, and um, we've discussed that this letter was written to first century Jewish Christians probably living in Rome and definitely experiencing major trouble and difficulties in their life. That's the context of this book. Um, They're being pressured so severely that they're severely tempted to give up, to fall back, to, um, to go back to a system that's easier for them to live in. That's what's going on. There's that much pressure happening. Um, and difficulty, if you've noticed this past year that we've had, difficulty tends to do that to all of us. It, um, the waves relentlessly beat on us and beat and beat and beat. They just little by little begin to wear us down. Um, our resolve begins to wear thin. And we, at some point, we want to resolve the tension. We want to get rid of the pain. We want to do whatever we can to go back to something that's easier, that's less stressful. We just want to relax, all of those types of things. And when it gets severe enough, we get tempted to turn back, to compromise, to um, lose ground, to stop progressing and perhaps start regressing. And that's what's happening here to this community. That's the purpose that this letter is being written. They were being rejected so severely by their friends and families for their faith in Jesus that they're tempted to fall back and go back to a system that they were um, that was oppressive and hurtful, but at least they were familiar with it. Kind of like a, a Stockholm syndrome type of a thing. Yeah, it was horrible. We, it was oppressive. It didn't do much, but hey, we know it. We're familiar with it. Um, so that's what's going on. Now last time, uh, we have some ground to cover. Last time we were in chapter 2. This time we're picking up in chapter 4 and we're going all the way through chapter 5, which means we're skipping a ton of material. So let me, let me go back a little bit for you all. Let me, let me start in, in chapter 3 just so we can get a running start at the, at the passage that we're in, that we're in today. And we can make sense of it and we can get the proper context of our passage. I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 7, just to give us an idea of what our passage today is talking about. He says this, So, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my way. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And here's the author of the Hebrews giving us a solemn warning. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Um, a lot here, and it's, it's very applicable to our scripture that uh, Nathan read before we got started. Okay, so, uh, in fact, it's very key to our understanding. The writer to the Hebrews reaches back to a time when the children of Israel were between Egypt and the promised land in a desert, those hard years, he's talking about those hard 40 years um, where the children of Israel were ro- wandering around in the wilderness, and he uses that image to describe what life is today. Did you notice the first verse? He says, so today, if you hear the, whole, the Spirit, don't be like something in the past. Really interesting. The writer is telling his readers and you and me that life, life is like trying to survive in a desert. That's the metaphor that the writer uses to describe life today, life for you, life for me. That's what it's like. The wilderness um, that's being referred to here in the the Bible is not like the wilderness that we have in the Pacific Northwest with evergreen trees and waterfalls and lakes and rivers and um, all sorts of beautiful things to look at and berries and all sorts of things. This is a land. The land that he's describing in the Bible is a land that's in it's uninhabitable. It's a desert. It is not capable of sustaining human life. You can surely um, you could survive in it, but not if you plan to stay there. You've got to you've got to keep moving. That's the idea. The children of Israel were wandering and they kept moving and they were only miraculously sustained. Through this desert wilderness. They were completely dependent on God. But the desert itself, way too arid to settle in. You could move through it, but it couldn't support any agriculture. It couldn't support any livestock. There was no dependable source of water or vegetation. It wasn't, it couldn't, you couldn't set up infrastructure to to, to set up a civilization. So when the when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, the whole plot of that Part of the narrative in the Old Testament, the whole plot is them getting out of it. Not staying there, but getting out of it. They were passing through to the land of promise, but in the desert, what constituted their lives in the desert? They were constantly thirsty and hungry. You remember that? That was one of the main things that they were grumbling about. One of their main problems was grumbling against God, and one of them, and Two of the main things that they were grumbling about was they were either hungry or they were thirsty. Most of their struggles revolved around having enough food or water and not knowing where their next meal or next drink was going to come from. And one of the things that this kind of pressure and panic brought out in the children of Israel was they began to to look back. They began to look back on Egypt longingly. They began to look back. In Egypt, at least there was always food. We knew where our next meal was coming from. We didn't have to worry about that. Water. <laughs> Egypt was surrounded by water. The Nile went right on through it. Here we have none of, we don't have either of those things. And this constant comparing Coupled, coupled with conveniently forgetting how oppressive Egypt was, but this constant comparing of where they found themselves in the desert, listen, under God's salvation. This is supposed to be, we're supposed to have been saved. So I'm comparing the salvation I have now, which isn't what I expected, to what we had in Egypt. And I'm now I'm wondering, what's so great about all this? What's so great about God's salvation? Maybe God's salvation isn't as wonderful as I thought it was. And this is the, this is, this is the quote-unquote heart of the sinful heart of unbelief that they found themselves in, that the writer of the Hebrews is now warning us to stay away from as we find ourselves in a desert experience uh, in life. That's what life is about. That's what he's talking about. Let me... Um, Let me just pull out a little excerpt from Exodus chapter 17. It says, When the whole Israelite community camped at Raphadim, there was no water for the people to drink. So because of that, they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you put the Lord your God to the test? But they were thirsty for water and they grumbled and said, why did the Lord bring us out of Egypt to make us die here of thirst? And they called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, quote, is the Lord among us or not? End quote. Is God even here? In other words, this is not what we expected salvation to be. We expected it to be much different. And now the writer to the Hebrews is using this collective memory from their past to write to the suffering people of his time who are also tempted to stop believing and fall back and look back because of tremendous hardship and sufferings that they're going through. And he reaches back and uses this example to say, and what he says to us, don't be like them. Here's a warning. Don't be like, you're in the same situation Don't turn out like them. Don't don't conclude what they concluded. Don't entertain that thought. This is a solemn warning to us. Don't be like the people who while they were in the wilderness, they turned back and gave up on God. Now, the implications of that, that life in this world, spiritually speaking, is a wilderness. That's the implications. That's what, Life is here. He's saying that we're really in the same situation now that they were in. And of course, um, if he was saying to, to this to his people of, of that time, it's true of us today. Again, remember the first words of verse 7, chapter 3 is today. It brings, us, it brings this situation right into our laps today, right now. If you hear the Spirit's voice, you're in a wilderness. He's saying that again, spiritually speaking, life in this world, your life, your life is like traveling through a desert. And I think personally, I think the first thing that we can do to not make that hurt so much is to expect it. I I personally think that Life is painful, life is suffering, and what makes it even more painful and more suffering is when we expect it to be something different than what it is. So first, we're shocked that it's even painful in the first place, right? That's, and then it's painful on top of that. It's like a double whammy. It's like a layered kind of a pain. And part of it is because we think it should not be like this. And you know, you talk to anybody from any other from any second or third world country, and they will, tell you, they, they will tell you the shock it is of coming to a place like this, coming to America. Nicole and I have a friend that has, that has uh, come from Africa, and we asked her, what is your impression of America? And she said, well, it's just really interesting here with all this affluence and wealth, and I was expecting that people would be a little bit more resilient, but the opposite is true you know when she said when i at home when a woman gets pregnant in africa it is both a, a, a it is both a time to celebrate and to mourn because chances are one or both the mom and the baby one of them will die during the birth that's the, the statistics and so that's that's just a way of life that's just how it is there you know and so, and so it because of that poverty, one of the maybe unasked for, uncoveted blessings of that is that it makes you resilient. You're a little bit tougher. When stuff happens, you kind of expected it because this is Africa. This is what happens here, right? Um, Where here, one of our problems that's made us less resilient is that we think that things ought to not be this way. Well, here, the writer says, life is, life is a desert. That's life here. Don't be fooled by that. Life is a desert. And there are a, few, there, are, there are a few things that this means for us. Let me flesh this metaphor out for us a little bit. First of all, like being in a literal desert, your life here is going to be marked by, what did we just talk about? What were they complaining about? Hunger and thirst. So, that will be the hallmark of our experience here on, the pla- on this planet. Hunger and thirst. A sense of not being satisfied. When you eat and drink, uh, it's like the timer sets. The timer resets just until you have to eat and drink again. Right? You're never satisfied. And for the Bible, that translates to a spiritual description of the human heart. In this life, in this world, family, professional success, money, friendships, all of the things that could make your life happy and fulfilled, like food and water, none of those things are able to satisfy your deepest needs of your soul. And that is the great deceit of the American dream. It, like, it just... uh, I always like to to, uh, liken it to a mosquito bite. You know, you you feel like you got to itch that thing. But the moment you do, it both satisfies you and yet it doesn't at the same exact moment. It feels so good. That's the spot right there. But it just flames it up and makes you need to itch it even more. It demands more. That's what life is like here. Things, people, places, achievements, they won't be able to satisfy your heart. Well, they do, but at the very same same time, they don't quite either. You got to have more. They might initially slake your thirst, but it just makes you want more. So just like in in a literal desert, your livestock might be able to graze here for a while. You might be able to find some water here and there or some rainwater poured up here and there. You're surviving. You can make it through, but you're not going to thrive here. And the moment you try to is the moment you start to die. The moment you set up to live in a desert is the moment that you won't. If you want to survive, you got to keep moving. The, The goal is survival implies you're getting out. And I think our problem is We've decided to think we 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 think this place should be heaven. So I'm going to set up here, and I should be fulfilled here, and I should be able to get everything that I need here to live and be satisfied. And as good as things are, they might satisfy you for a little bit. Family is great. Professional success is wonderful. All those things that we try to get in life are great, but if you if you try to get your deepest needs of your heart fulfilled by them, you're gonna, you're gonna die of thirst. That's the idea. Even the best marriages and jobs and locations and vacations, even life at its peak will not satisfy here. And we know this by now. We have enough data to act, this is not theory anymore. We have have case study after case study after case study in our culture of people who have it all, who have everything this planet can possibly offer and yet they're miserable. The thing about life, the thing about this life is the moment you start to get anything you really want, it begins to slip through your fingers like sand. This reminds me of... of, um, the Pirates of the Caribbean, Captain Barbosa. I wrote it down so I wouldn't get the quote wrong. Captain Barbosa said in the Pirates of the Caribbean, he said, when he's describing the curse that they're under, he said, the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths. All the company in the world would would not harm or slake our, our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner, Compelled by greed, we, by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. For, for too long I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. I can't even die. <laughs> I feel nothing, not the wind on my face, nor the spray of the sea, nor the warmth of a, woman, of a woman's flesh. That's it. Every family is in the process of scattering off and dying here in this life. Every face is turning to dust slowly but surely. Every strong body is, a, is on its way to dust. You're thinking, wow, Mike's in a great mood this morning. <laughs> but it's true. You can't deny it. This life is a wilderness. And if you try to settle... If you put your greatest hopes for happiness and success on anything in this world, that's the moment you start to wither and die. The second implication, there's another implication to this idea of the world being like a desert. It refers to how we relate to God, our spiritual life. See, in Egypt, right before they left, it was really exciting spiritually. If you, you read uh, in Exodus... 9, 10, 11, 12, up to the Passover and then the, the water crossing in 14. And then um, chapter 15 is the song of the sea where they, they praise God for all these miracles that he had just done. They, things were exciting. Their salvation experience was incredible. And then when they entered into the promised land under Joshua, that was exciting They were conquering enemies and taking the land, and it it was just a very spiritually exciting uh, time. But in the middle, in the wilderness, the miracles were few and far between. In the wilderness, what this writer is saying, this is what life is like, the miracles are few and far between. They, They were 40 years of spread out miracles, sprinkled out over 40 years. Or in Egypt, it seemed like there was a new plague every week to get them out right in other words it seemed in the wilderness it seems that god is absent that's the idea they saw his they saw his sign in the clouds by day and the pillar by night that's true but they were still going hungry and still thirsty they were encountering so many problems that god did not immediately solve sound familiar What I'm trying to say is that in the wilderness, God doesn't seem to be doing what you expect Him to do, does He? He doesn't do what you think He ought to do. And He doesn't doesn't do it when you think He ought to do it or how you, you expected Him to do it. That marks the wilderness. And what the Hebrew writer is telling us when he says that this life is like a desert, he's saying that more often than not, God doesn't seem to be doing things the way you think he should do them. Or he just seems absent altogether. Remember that in Exodus 17, they said, is God with us or not? Have you felt like, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or volunteer or anything, but have you felt like that? Maybe in the quietness of your own uh, your own life and your own mind, have you ever said, God, honest, I, like, I, look, I hate to doubt you, but uh, seriously, are you, are, you, are you for me? Are you here? I thought you were, but now I'm not so sure. I've screamed that out that many a time. <laughs> where are you? I thought you were supposed to work. I thought you were supposed to set me free from this. I thought I was supposed to be over this by now. I thought, I thought where are you? Well, one thing is to understand where you are. The, Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews would say, you're in a desert, okay? So, if this world is a place where even the best things in life are bound to disappoint you, and eventually, um, and if this world is, is a place where, in general, you're going to find that God doesn't do the things that you were thinking He was going to do, or expected Him to do, then it's almost inevitable um, that you're going to be tempted to, to look back. That's, that's probably normal, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. The temptation to look back is not something that you necessarily have to shame yourself about. I should be you know I should be a better Christian or a bad Christian. I should have faith. Well, you're in a desert. And looking back, it's kind of it, it, it's a thing. You're going to be tempted to do that. The best of them did. There were those that saw God part water and bring quail when they were hungry, and this mysterious bread would show up every morning on the desert floor, and yet they still were tempted to want to go back. You're in good, co- well, or you're in bad company, however you want to, however you want to interpret it. <laughs> Since this place is a wilderness, what does he say? How does he tell us to, to do this? He says, "Since this place is a wilderness, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness." The Greek word there is parakaleo it means encouragement. It's translated encouragement. Encourage one another every day, truth, and what that what that actually means is truth and love every day. The writer to the Hebrews is telling us that we'll never make it through life without daily encouragement. We'll never make it through life without daily encouragement. Do you understand that? I hope you understand. Well, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. We are to do this for one another daily. And listen, it's for survival. This is for survival. You need this. I need this. We all need this. And this is how Christian community works. This is how it works every day. See, in the wilderness, you're going to get cynical. You're going to get jaded. That's going to happen in the wilderness. You're going to get bitter. You're going to get upset. You're going to stop trusting. You're going to lose hope. You're going to start slipping and falling and sinking. That's good. It's It's part of being in the wilderness. That's going to happen. And the only possible way that you can avoid turning back in this life is through daily encouragement. Daily encouragement. That means for some, being vulnerable and letting people into your life. And it means for other, being brave enough to ask what's going on in people's lives and even confront some things with love. That's what it means. Being vulnerable to let people in. Now, let me ask you this. I'll just put it straight to you. How does this description of community compare with going to church once a week? It doesn't. Does it? This is a, this only works. Survival only works by being a community daily. Daily. Every day. This, this passage confronts us in our Western culture where we like to compartmentalize and you're, you're a relationship for this part of my life and these are relationships for this part of my life. I'm very in control of all of those things. You're, what you're doing is you're, you are gutting the power of Christian community in your life. I'll tell you, uh, truly, I am here today Really, not because I did anything on my own, but because I had people who cared enough about me to be nosy enough in my life and to ask questions and to challenge me. When I came to Christ, I was immediately inducted into a church that was like that, where we spent every day together because we happened to go to the same school also. That was convenient. We saw each other every day. And then we'd be at church after school. We'd do our homework together, and we prayed and we worshiped together, and we got involved in each other's lives together. And there was daily encouragement. When we are when we are allowed to, let me let me encourage you: have people over to your over to your house when we're. When the society opens, when we're allowed to, when, it's, when, it's, um, when the governor says it's okay, have people over. Open your home. Get to know one another. Have, invite each other over for a, a glass of wine and a game night. Do something, because that's, the Christian community is not here on Sundays from 1130 to whenever we're supposed to be done, 2. <laughs> it's not that long. wait a second (laughs) just a little bit slide slide that in there but that is not christian community christian community is every day get involved in a home group but here's what i would love to see i love home groups and home groups are great i love them but i would love to see organic home groups sprouting up and people just going over I and mean, having people over for dinner or for breakfast or for lunch or meeting up for coffee, just things that don't need to be scheduled or put on a church calendar, but things that just spur up from the church's heart, from your own soul. Have people over. Meet up with them. Call people. How are you? How are you doing? <clears throat> That's a side note. Okay, so This leads right to the idea, believe it or not, of our of our passage today on what it means to be a high priest. That's where we launch into today. The high priest was essentially a mediator within this community. Okay, Um, and this is hard for us to understand because we don't have high priests today. You know what I mean? You you know, you're not going to show up at a job fair and there's going to be a guy that says. I'm a high priest, and here's how you get, you know, that, that's kind of a foreign concept for us. But to them, this would have been, to the people that Hebrews was written to, this would have been a very, very familiar uh, concept. In Israel's history, people could not just come to God whenever they felt like it. They couldn't come to God on their own. They had to go through a high priest. In fact, and for these new Christian believers, the idea of having access to God whenever you wanted, like in... Um, Chapter four, verse verse sixteen. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of God, where we can see we can receive grace and mercy in our time of need. That was a, a mind blowing concept for for the Hebrews because you could not approach God without a high priest. You had to have a mediator. In their minds and culture, you could only get to God through a high priest. You could only be forgiven. You could not be forgiven for your sins without a high priest. You couldn't be accepted without a high priest. The high priest was the cornerstone of your, of your spiritual spiritual life. You couldn't do anything without, without going through him first. So look at the description of the high priest. Look at uh, Let's go with chapter 5, the very first part of chapter 5. He says, Every high priest is selected from among the people, and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer, offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So we're in a desert. In a desert, you're not only you're not going to survive unless you're unless you're encouraging one, one another every day. And we'll loop back around to that and how this works for our day. But also in a desert, your relationship with God is cut off as well. You can't just come to God. This is not Eden. Eden, in the beginning of the Bible, Eden had Adam and Eve had access to God. They were always with God. They had unimpeded access to God. But since they rebelled and sinned, they were cast out, exiled into a desert experience. And one of the the ways that they died was their spiritual life died. They were cut off from God. And the rest of the narrative of the Bible is, is God working to redeem, to bring Eden back to earth. Meaning, the idea is so that God could, man could dwell with God again and God could dwell with man unimpeded, unhindered by anything. That's, that's the main goal. That's what we see at the end of the Bible. And God, I, God is with man again, the end of the Bible proclaims again. That's the idea. But until then, there needed to be a mediator And from this, we see two main principles for the high priest. First, did you notice from our scripture, first, the high priest is relatable and therefore compassionate. This is what you need to think in your mind when you think of a high priest. He's relatable and therefore compassionate. And secondly, the high priest is called by God. In other words, God chose a man to do this job because he wanted someone who could relate to mankind and therefore have compassion on people have compassion on them. The high priest, listen, was not to be heartless or untouchable or unrelatable or someone who didn't understand the struggles of humanity. He wasn't some person who, had, who was impervious to sin himself and therefore didn't get when, when you brought your life to him. Ideally, the high priest did all of his work with a heart of compassion towards people. For example, when you would come to God and make atonement for your sins, you would bring a perfect lamb or a perfect bull from your herd, but not just any old lamb or a perfect one. No blemishes. And you would come to the high priest with your offering because you want to atone between you and God. You want to you make things right between you and God. And you'd bring your offering to the high priest. And the high priest, would you would you you would lay your hands on this animal and transfer yourself onto this innocent animal. The idea was that this innocent, because you're not innocent, so you can't go before God. So this animal... Only through blood is going to be punished on your behalf vicariously, and through the blood of the animal, enter into God's presence. And vicariously, that's you doing it symbolically. And you would confess your sins. And because the priest was a man, he would have compassion on the person confessing their sins. He wasn't above the person or reached some higher level of moral perfection than the person that was confessing sins. No. The priest could identify because he's got the same kinds of issues going on in his own life. He dealt with some of the same struggles and failures and sins as the people. That's why he had to offer his own sacrifice first. So he'd be reminded of the sins of the people and also his own sins. And this was an absolute must to being a high priest was that you could could identify with humanity. In fact, in a sense the more human and the more of your own humanity that you wrestled with, the more uniquely qualified you were to be a good high priest. Okay, secondly, it said that you had to be called by God. Not only did you have to be compassionate um, and relatable, you were called by God. Okay, the, um, the Aaronic priesthood was established through hereditary succession. Do you know that? Here's what that means. The first High priest was Aaron, and the next high priest was Aaron's oldest, and the next high priest was Aaron's oldest, oldest, and on and on it goes, okay? In other words, this was not a position that you would apply for. They wouldn't post, hey, we have an opening for a high priest, and people would line up and like audition. That's not how it worked. This was nothing that, that anybody earned through religious observance, but it was appointed People, people were not high priests because they were spiritually better than others. No, listen, if you wanna know the truth of it, they were high priests simply because they happened to be born in the nation of Israel. And not only that, they were high priests because they happened to be born to a specific tribe within the nation of Israel. And not only that, they happened to be born in a specific family of a specific tribe in the nation of, in the nation of Israel. And not only that, they happen to be born in a specific birth order, in a specific family, in a specific tribe, in a specific nation that is Israel. They had no control over this. They happen to be the oldest. And then, of course, the writer draws a straight line From this high priest to Jesus, saying he is the better than, the ultimate, the absolute fulfillment of the perfect high priest, the mediator between God and man, because Jesus meets both of these qualifications perfectly. First, we see Jesus is capable of having compassion on mankind because of Jesus' humanity. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, and by the way, the ascension is a way bigger deal than what we understand. We, think, we tend to think he ascended, which means he's not here anymore. That's, that's kind of, he left, and it means he's coming back sometime." That's not the idea. The idea is, and I might be getting ahead of the writer a little bit, the idea is that Jesus is the new temple. Back in in ancient days, in the ancient Near East, not just with Judaism, but with um, all surrounding nations, temple meant um, the place where heaven and earth connected. That was the idea. In other words, the power of heaven was consolidated, was concentrated on that point of earth. It was the seat of power, divine power. That's what Israel believed. Jesus came and claimed, I am now the new temple. I am now the place where heaven and earth connect because of my humanity and my divinity. I am the temple. I'm the place where we meet. When Jesus ascends and sits at the right hand of the father, it means that there is a human connection. There is a human sitting on the throne of heaven. That means he has authority right now over this earth. That's what, that's what the ascension means. And, and I could, I mean, there's several, there's a sermon series on that idea alone that quite frankly, we have lost the power of that idea in our, in our culture, but it's huge. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, therefore, since we have such a great high priest, why is he great? Because he's ascended into heaven. In other words, the temple is with God, and it's where heaven and earth meet. It's in Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, Let because of this, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just like us, except he did not sin. Let us then, because of this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Two things here that make Jesus the ultimate mediator, the ultimate high priest. First of all, he was tempted in every way like us. Think of that. Jesus, Jesus gets you. He gets it. He actually understands what you are going through. He's put on skin and walked around in this broken world. There is no other religion on the planet, no other major world religion that offers a vision of God like that. Um, there's a, a poem that I, uh, my friend wrote. He says, The mediator between God and man was among us, lived as we lived, a man with a mother. He felt the same things we feel, like emotion and hunger, yet still was the God of wonders. He knows what it was like to be tempted, constantly tested, and yet was without sin perfection. And thus, he can sympathize with our weakness. God can relate from a place of completeness. That's the idea. Jesus has been rejected, Jesus has been grieved. Jesus knows what it means to grieve. Jesus knows loss. Jesus knows betrayal and pain and misunderstanding and temptation. Jesus knows it. He's been there. He's the high priest that's entered into this desert of life and experienced it to redeem us from it. We all know that suffering is somewhat, uh, you know, relative, right? We all suffer in different ways. And for some things that are big deals to others, they're not big deals to other people and all of that. A lot of, like, for example, a lot of children living in extreme poverty, they know that they are poor, but they don't know exactly how poor because it's their own experience, right? But children think of children living in luxury. A, a, a someone that lives in the lap of luxury, and lives in beauty and eloquence and now is thrown into squalor and poverty. They're, it kind of enhances their suffering because they know what they've lost. They know what it could be. They acutely feel more lost than somebody that never had it in the first place, you see. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus. No one could have experienced the same darkness that he experienced when he was rejected and killed because Jesus came from the the eternal lap of luxury. All power, all riches, all honor, all glory, perfect, absolute fulfillment was his. And he took it off and put on our life here in the desert. I put to you that he suffered more than anybody because of what he lost. Jesus knows more than you and I because he lost more. But secondly, it says that he was without sin. Now, when it says that, some people say, well, w- wait a second, wait a minute. He doesn't, if he doesn't know sin, if he's perfect, then obviously he doesn't know what it's like to be me. He can't. He can't put himself in my shoes. But that's that's missing the point of what this scripture is saying. And actually, this is the. the actually, I would say this is precisely what makes Jesus the ultimate mediator and priest. Let me explain it. Um, I, well, I don't want to speak for you, so I'll speak for myself. It's it's my self centeredness, my self absorption, and my sin that that prevents me from putting myself in other people's shoes. Do you understand that? The reason I can't be empathetic, the reason I I can't understand what you're feeling is because I'm too self-absorbed to get into your shoes completely. I'm too selfish to get into your shoes completely. I don't want to think about, uh, about others because I've got my own problems. Or other people's problems just remind me of me and myself. I want to stay away from that. It's too uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. See, selfishness blocks empathy. Selfishness blocks empathy. That's why clinically, narcissistic people are the most unempathetic people. That's one of, a sign of, of narcissism is when someone can, is incapable of empathizing. It's because it's when someone is so self-absorbed that they can't dare get out of their own skin and feel something that's not theirs. Selfishness blocks empathy, but Jesus is perfect love. In other words, there is no barrier that he knows. He knows you better than you know yourself and far more wisely because he's not, he's not self-conscious. He's, he, he, he absolutely is sucked down deep into your pain and into my pain, completely. And if you want proof, just read the Bible. One thing about Jesus is he's feeling deeply. If you read the Gospels, he's always crying or sighing deeply within himself. He's always sighing. In Mark chapter 7, we hear Jesus sigh when he heals the deaf and mute person. He sighs deeply within his soul. With all of his power, why does he sigh? Because he lets himself be drained by us. He can enter fully into where you're at. Um you Remember Jairus's daughter or Jairus's daughter? He goes into the room and says, Remember, he says, Telethakumi. In other words, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And Jairus's daughter was, was dead. It's time to get up. He touches her hand. My point is, when you read the Gospels, the tenderness of Jesus is everywhere. It's just on every page. He's so tender, so present. And in that way, he drew everybody because he let people drain him he's so gentle have you been betrayed so is he and by you by the way <laughs> have you ever been mocked so is he are you broken so was he he's been through it all and it's his sin it's precisely his sinlessness that allows him to relate to you the most For me, one of the greatest examples of Jesus as the ultimate encourager is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. That story is such a great example of Jesus' balance, but his tenderness. There's this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, and the religious leaders bring her to Jesus. They're about to execute her. And Jesus deals with her her accusers. It's a famous story. And he tells tells them, let him who is without sin cast the first rock at her. They're going to kill her by throwing rocks at her, stoving her skull in with rocks. I mean, it was brutal. And because none of them are without sin, you remember the story. They throw their rocks down. They're kind of put on the spot, and they all walk away. And he's left alone with this woman. And he looks at her, and he says... Remember the famous line, neither do I condemn you. He says, where are your accusers? And she goes, I don't, they're not anywhere, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, look at the balance of that and let that just blow your mind. He doesn't say, I don't condemn you because who's really to say what sin is anyway? You know, we're all dealing with stuff. I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not here to judge you know, go about your way. I don't know what your life is like, you know. It's not for me to judge. He doesn't take that approach, (laughs) okay? But on the other hand, he doesn't say, you are such trash, I'll let you off this time, but don't let this ever happen again, you understand? He doesn't do do that either. And he he also doesn't say, okay, how about this? If you go and sin no more, if you go and sin you more, then maybe I won't, maybe I won't condemn you we'll have a parole board meeting and we'll all confer and me, the Father and the Holy Spirit and we'll, we'll consider, we'll weigh out the pros and cons and your, your areas of growth and maybe we'll let you off early. He doesn't do that either. He does not say, I base my love on your behavior. Notice, he says, I want you to base your behavior on my love. Because I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Now, therefore, because of that, go and, and be free from this sin. It's this perfect balance. Absolute, complete hatred of sin is intact. It's still there. He's not condoning her actions. It's still there. And absolute, complete love and acceptance of the sinner is still there at the exact moment. That is why, I, mean, I don't know, that's why I fell in love with Jesus right there was stuff like that that He does. I can follow that. I can get behind that. Now, how does that, how does that, how does he do that? How can he be that? Here's why. Look at verse five. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world does that mean? Right? What? Who is Melchizedek? What's that all about? Um, well, the people the writer of the Hebrews was writing to could see how Jesus fulfilled the empathy part of, of being the high priest, but they would have had a problem with Jesus with the hereditary succession thing of Jesus. He was not born of the tribe of Levi, right? He had never uh, acted or in his earthly career, he had never taken the, the place in the temple as a high priest. They would have had a problem with this. Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron, Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He never officiated sacrifices in the temple. So the Hebrews would have scratched their head at this point and been like, okay, where are you going with this? And the writer to the Hebrews is addressing that by taking a look at the priesthood according to the order of this man, Melchizedek. He's looking back on ancient scripture and seeing how Jesus fulfills a very brief and obscure moment of this high priest named Melchizedek. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews is saying there's a different kind of priesthood now. There's a new priesthood. Yes, there's a priesthood of Aaron, but there's also a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Suddenly, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this ancient character, Melchizedek, is going to be this key figure in understanding the mission of Jesus Christ. He streaks across the sky of God's revelation in Genesis, like a meteor, you know, bright but brief. (laughs) But he shows us something extremely important about Jesus, and we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this in chapter 7, so I won't get into it now. But I will say one thing. In the Old Testament, one thing you never see is a priest who is a king, or a king who is a priest, except Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up, um, and in him, he's a priestly king. And the reason you don't don't mix these two, or the reason was, is because the king represented God to the people. The king told the law of God was supposed to be the living embodiment of of the law of God, and the king enforced the law of God. That was the king's job, but the priest represented the people to God. The the priest was the caregiver. The priest was the compassionate one. The priest was the one that accepted and made provision for and offered forgiveness in a way to be reconciled with God. Those were two completely different offices. So how in the world could you possibly combine those two things into one person? The king was the person of truth. The priest was the person of compassion. The king was like, the, was like the, the stern truth teller. I'm here to uphold the law, the state. And the priest was the tender, loving one. How do you combine those two? Well, like I said, only one mysterious place in the Bible where a person shows up who is a priest king. It's way back in the bowels of Genesis. And it happens extremely quickly in the life of Abraham, like really fast. Abraham meets this guy named Melchizedek. And this guy is a king of a city who offers sacrifices to the Lord, to Yahweh. He's a priest king. He's a king who also is a priest. And he shows up for a couple of, for a couple of verses and then whoop, vanishes, vanishes, leaves. No, no more, he's just gone. And everyone that reads it is like, who, is, who was that guy? And then the writer to the Hebrews comes along and says, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste because of the priest kingly nature of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just a priest and he's not just a king. Jesus is a priest king. That's why he's, a, in our passage, a great high priest. And if we don't have both, we're lost. You know that? We need both. He's absolutely committed, Jesus is, to both holiness and truth, and he's absolutely committed to love and accept at the very same time. Where does and of course, we see this the most on the cross. This is this is displayed for all to see on the cross. Hebrews says it in verse seven. He says, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in uh, forever in the order of Melchizedek. There is only one place where this happens, and it was in in the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus paid eternal justice. He paid the price for your sin. He paid the debt that you could not pay. And because He took that wrath and penalty that the human race deserved... On the cross, infinite love was actually honoring infinite justice. And infinite justice was serving infinite love, infinite truth. See, if Jesus Christ would have been Lord of truth only over Lord of love, He wouldn't have had to die on the cross. He just would have let us all die for our sins. That would have been ultimate truth. It's what you deserve. Justice. There it is. If that's all that he was, if he was just truth, we'd all be dead. (laughs) But if Jesus Christ would have been the Lord of love over truth, he he wouldn't have needed to die either. He would have just said, I just accept you guys. Just, you know, it doesn't matter. I know you're flawed, and I know you're a mess. It's just the way it's going to be. Mankind will be mankind, right? But he didn't do that either. And now you know why he's able to talk to this woman caught in adultery the way he did. He says, neither do I condemn you, but go and stop doing that. It's this perfect, perfect, beautiful balance. I don't condemn you, but that's wrong. Stop. She's guilty and yet he doesn't condemn her. How can that be? Because he took the condemnation on himself. He's saying, girl, you're you're not getting stoned because I'm going to, because I'm, well, you're not going to get stoned because I'm going to get executed. That's why. I'm going to get the stones. I'm going to take the spears. I'm going to take the crown of thorns. I'm going to take the nails. I'll take that. And in that way, at infinite cost to himself, Jesus separated sin from sinner somehow. Now the Bible says that we, in light of Jesus, are a nation of priests. In other words, that, we are, that the cross is not just something that happened to grant us salvation. Listen, the cross is also a template of how we are to live and bring salvation to, to the desert. We miss this part. We really do. We miss this part. Jesus dying on the cross did make provision and salvation for you, absolutely. But that template of, that now becomes the way a Christian lives and that also becomes the way that we bring salvation to the desert and to earth. It's the way the new Eden comes. It's what we're gonna celebrate in a couple of, uh, couple of weeks. New creation comes through you. New Eden comes through me. The more I embody, or as we're going to do in a second, ingest the message of the cross. Christians embody dying to self and then living a new created life. And that's how we bring the priestly uh, power of the kingdom of God to the desert that we're in. We play a huge part in this. We want, what we want to do, we want to skip and go right to the resurrection. Right? I just want new life. We like that part. But what we don't like is Mark chapter 8, where Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want, if you want to go where I'm going, what do you do? As a lifestyle, you must take up your cross. And just in case you miss it, he adds the word daily. In other words, don't think of the cross, Christians, as a one-time event so that you don't have to suffer anymore. No, 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 no. Suffering is not just inevitable, it's necessary to bring redemption. We don't like that part here in the West, not at all, but it's why we are impotent as a church. It's why I'm impotent in my life, spiritually. I I refuse to die to myself and I'm holding back resurrection power because I want to skip that step. It's like Lazarus. You, you know, hey, Lazarus, is, your friend is, is sick. He's dying. Jesus didn't come right away, right? They wanted to skip the death part. To them, it would be good enough just to heal the guy, but Jesus had way bigger things in mind. He was going to raise him from the dead. He just had to let Lazarus die first so he could do it. We want to skip that part. We just want to be healed. We pray, God, heal me for my selfishness, my lies, my habits, my addictions. What are you asking for? You're asking for a resurrection. Why don't you have it? Because you're not dying. Right? We're not dying first. I'm not dying first. Because why? We've separated the cross. The cross is something that happened so that I could be forgiven and go to this place called heaven. You guys, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the cross is something that happened vicariously for you so that you can be forgiven, and you were not saved from this world, you guys. You were saved for this world to bring heaven to the desert. Not only did the cross save you from your sins, it also now becomes the way of life for Christians to bring power down here. We are now priests. We are now temples. We are now the touchpoint between heaven and earth. You and me were the touchpoint of heaven and earth. How can we reconcile to a God like that without reenacting that in our own lives. And that, I'd bet the farm, you guys, that's what's missing in Western Christianity. That's what's missing in me. It's not because we live in a really dark secular culture. Oh, you guys, Christianity has thrived in cultures much more dark and secular than ours. It is not the problem of the, oh, we live in Seattle. No, 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 I'm sorry. You can't get off like that. I'm sorry. The Bible won't let you get off like that. Sorry. Oh, the wondrous cross bids me come and die to find that I may truly live. No wonder it's called a narrow way. We're gonna take communion this morning. And that's what this is, that's what this what you're signing up for. To remember a kingdom that has come. Listen, when you take communion, you are remembering a kingdom that has come on Jesus on the cross. That has been done. It's a done deal to telestim, it is finished. You're remembering something that has been done, but you're also remembering something that you are to bring. To dig out, like Wayne said last week, I, I love when he said to mine out from your salvation or the, the scripture that he said to work out your salvation. How do you work out your salvation? By living the cross, by living the, the, the gospel story, death, resurrection, death daily. Lord, I am out of time. help us ingest this message you've bid us to come and die suffering is not just that inevit- inevitable thing lord that uh, of living in this world that's it's actually on heaven's side it's it's actually necessary it is the agent of redemption and we can't do it unless we're empowered by your spirit it's not in us we don't have the we don't have the inner fortitude to go through to bow our heads under the tidal wave of suffering and death we just don't have it unless we're empowered by your spirit unless we're reminded of the cross unless you had done it for us unless you had gone before us it won't work for us And you did go before us. And that's why we come to your cross today and remember that you went before us and empower us to do it in our own lives. Fill us with that power, Lord. Wake us up. I think of this scripture that says, wake up, O you sleeper. We are asleep. Wake us up, God. Start with me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.